0: I was fine until he put this on, and now I feel my heart beating in my toes. <clears throat> when, I was, uh, when I was asked to consider speaking to you this morning, I must admit I was a bit reluctant. Uh, you have in your fellowship a couple of the sincerest Bible teachers and men of character that I know, and uh, I'm sure that you'll agree with that sentiment. I remember expressing my concern to Dave, stating that I felt very comfortable teaching 13 and 14-year-olds the Bible but uh, in the 8th grade, but was quite out of practice and somewhat intimidated about speaking to adults, So, uh, especially as substitutes for men like that. Dave suggested that I just come and pretend like you were 14-year-olds and teach the Bible uh, <clears throat> And, as usual, I felt that was wise counsel. so, to that end, if you don't mind, i'd like you to help me. I brought some things. I asked my daughter to make sure I wouldn't offend anybody, and I still may but <clears throat> here are some red pins I'd like to pass out. If some of you would scribble zits on your forehead and <laughs> on your cheeks, and then uh, maybe a girl or two this is this would be good. You need to constantly be putting this on throughout the message and and turning to your friend and saying, I, I look horrible today, I don't know how I'll survive. <laughs> I brought a little gum, I'd like a couple girls in particular, if you'd chew it with your mouth wide open, and then every once in a while twist it with your index finger, and that that would help me feel at home. Brought some mascara. Uh, Adrian, if you might put this on as if it's the very first time ever you've been experimenting and... <laughs> For the guys, I brought hair gel. <laughs> and what I'd like you to do there, fellas, is put it on thick and leave a glob right on the crown of your head that you just you couldn't see in the mirror. And, and uh, that would be very helpful. Last but not least, some of you husbands, if you just pretend like your wife was your adolescent sweetheart, and just stare at her the whole time. Don't listen to me. Just stare at her and, you know, just kind of stare at her. I'd I, I feel real good. <clears throat> I don't want to offend any of you young people by that. And I don't want to paint too negative a caricature. I, I uh, teach 8th graders for a reason, and that's because I love that age. And uh, it's, uh, it's a good thing to do. So all kidding aside, we're here to focus on the Lord. So would you bow with me and uh, join me in prayer. Lord, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight this morning. May that which is said that is unnecessary fall on deaf ears, and may that which is said that might advance your kingdom uh, certainly be remembered and applied. We commit this time to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a teacher right here at Care Paravel. I have been in one capacity or another for 16 years. This coming school year will be my 20th year to teach. and uh, For the past four, I've been teaching a self-contained 8th grade class that we adopted a few few years back. I have a better half named Tammy and uh, five uh, kids who are just the joy of our lives. Uh, For those of you who do know me, it'll probably come as no surprise that I'm going to blend together some elements of educational philosophy, medieval knighthood, and uh, some probable goofiness in my little testimonial this morning. In the end, I hope you come away edified and encouraged. If I had to entitle this message, it would be Pounding Pages with Principles of Power, and uh, hopefully that'll be borne out as we speak. Chris handed out a little thing that we'll reference from time to time called the Paladin Paradigm, and I'll explain how that works. When I was 17 years old and a junior in high school, two things happened. I was introduced to a new church and a very dynamic uh, youth pastor, and I decided I wanted to be a school teacher. Friends thought I was crazy, and my parents thought that there'd be a better way to make a living, and but I really felt it was a calling from the Lord, and uh, it came about as a result of the influence of this wonderful youth pastor named Larry Baldridge. This was in Ottawa. He now re- resides in Lawrence, and uh, several influential teachers that I had the privilege of sitting under. My youth pastor was a navigator-oriented kind of guy, so he was big into uh, scripture memory and principles of discipleship. As a matter of fact, during my senior year, I got to do one of those things called a work study where you go off in the afternoon and work a job, and my job was uh, to work with him for three hours every afternoon just doing the work of, of the church and facilitating his ministry. One of the theme verses he drove home in the area of a discipleship was 2 Timothy 2.2, which says, "...and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses the same commit thou to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And he convinced me, and I believe rightly so, that this was the crux of any kind of ministry. And he he proved to me that helping people come to faith in Christ, helping them grow in that faith under the watchful eye of what we would now call a mentor, and helping them reach the point where they can impart those principles to others and defend their own faith was what it was all about. So as we studied and memorized, I experienced two emotions. The first was great excitement. These new things in the Word of God were being revealed to me. But the second was a little bit of frustration and disappointment at the fact that I'd been saved since I was 13 years old. And I got saved at an evangelistic crusade, accepted the Lord that night, but was never plugged into a church. I'd always grown up in a church that didn't preach the true gospel. And I didn't know any of the Word of God, and I stopped to realize when I was 17 how many mistakes I could have avoided you know, from 13 to 17 if I'd have only known these principles and been applying them to my life. Well, then I went to college and got a teaching degree from a school that used terminology like traditional Christian education and the moral education of the founding fathers. Their argument was that the modern system of education in the public schools in particular was failing and there was a great need for a return just to the kind of education practices that were utilized by the founding fathers and people in colonial times. And during that time, I was also involved in a ministry called Real Life Ministries that was very much like the Navigators. Their philosophical difference was that they believed you ought to start and operate out of the local church Instead of having kind of a parachurch kind of label, but they too emphasized 2 Timothy 2.2 and grounded us in that notion as we tried to make disciples of young people on state university campuses. Our target area was Clemson University in Clemson, South Carolina. And as I'm going through this training, I start to notice a parallel between these principles of discipleship and these principles of traditional education. You can see it in the first couple of columns there. In that first uh, stage of those first two columns, you see that both required laying foundations and principles. In discipleship, it involves scripture memory, immersion in the word of God. As Jeremiah said, uh, thy words were found, and I did eat them. And they became unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. In traditional education, which was running parallel to this, I was being trained that especially young people ought to be involved in rote memorization, recitation, learning facts, and just generally gaining exposure to the world around them. This, in the early ages in particular, when they enjoyed doing that and you want to cram their head, this is where the title Pounding Pages with Principles of Power, you cram their head with the materials that they can use later on in life when they have that ability to reason and when they have that ability to defend the faith. And so this foundation, this parallel was running in my mind and I started to wonder if these things work and then on that second level, both required a working out of the truth and principles that were being discovered. You know, Philippians says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And Joshua 1.8 says to meditate on the things that are the principles of God's word day and night that we may observe to do according to all that is written therein. And then we'll make our way prosperous and then we'll have good success. And I was blown away by Isaiah 118, which says, Come now, let us reason together. The thought that God would choose to invite man to sit down and reason with him about his salvation. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made as white as snow. And on the education front, we were taught that learning those facts and figures when we were young, there ought to come a point where you learn how to process for them. You have this grist for the mill of your thinking... And after those bodies of facts are learned, then you figure out how to debate those facts, how to logically think through things, how to take positions on things, to see both sides of the picture. Two things that the early American fathers did in particular were memorize large portions of essays and scripture from the Greeks to the Romans to the Bible itself, and then to make logical associations and translations. That, that would help them to develop the positions that they were going to take for life on various, in various disciplines. And finally, both of these seem to agree that mastery of things would enable the learner to eloquently state his position or beliefs. First Peter 3.15 says that we're to sanctify the Lord in our hearts and be ready always to answer every man that asks us a reason of the hope that is in us, and the only way I can be prepared to do that is if I know the word of God to draw my answers from. Can't do it from mere experience. Can't do it from mere emotion. I had to be grounded. A learner has to be grounded in the word of God. Paul said to Timothy in that Second 2 Timothy 2, two passage, it was now time for him to be able to commit to faithful men the things that he had learned and that, so that those faithful men could teach others also. He was to preach the word, he was to be instant, in season and out of season, so that he could reprove, rebuke, exhort, and do all things to advance the kingdom of God. Over in the schoolhouse, and parallel and integrated into that, students were learning principles of persuasion and elocution they're supposed to have a good idea of what they thought about politics and about trade and about theology and they were supposed to be able to articulate their thoughts clearly and defend their beliefs appropriately. And Of course out of that tradition we have some of the best orators that have maybe ever been produced. Daniel Webster, Alexander Hamilton, Jonathan Edwards who by God's grace was almost single-handedly responsible for the Great Awakening because these people were grounded in the Word of God and they knew how to use it to apply it to every situation. So off I went to Lawrence, Kansas after I graduated. Tammy and I had met. We were married, fledgling marriage, fledgling school. We started with a group of people, a one-room schoolhouse to work in association with a church and I was an associate pastor for three years and as we were applying these principles in the school and church, life was pretty good. One thing we did in that small school was teach the Word of God. Indeed, we required every kid in second grade and above to read through their Bible every year. King James Version. In kindergarten and first grade, we taught them to read memorized catechism, scripture verses, things like that. But in second grade, they took off. We had some good and godly parents who would sit there every night and let their little second grade children read the Bible aloud to them. If they could do five chapters a day and gain about seven or eight over the weekend, they could make it through in a school year. And they did this, and they loved it. Actually, it was not an idea original with me. It was kind of foisted upon us in this church school and It was beautiful. I I know for a fact that some of those students who are now anywhere from 24 to 32 years of age would be able to come in here and tell you that they have still read their Bible every year uh, since they started doing that way back when. After three years of that I came to Care Paravel and was introduced to uh, this Dorothy Sayers lady and a, and a thing called uh, The Lost Tools of Learning, and that's on your sheet there. She wrote an essay, and the notion of classical Christian education was introduced to me, and I noticed that we went to a homeschooling conference here just this past weekend, a friend and I, and classical Christian education has taken off as, as uh, the theme of the homeschool. Uh, publications and things as well. A return to this notion of doing things in a certain way. I have to confess, I initially thought classical Christian education meant you got to sit down and read Aristotle and Augustine and all of that kind of stuff. But Sayre's essay laid it out in terms that were easy for a layman to understand. Some of you probably read that. The classicists called it the trivium, the triweum: the three ways of obtaining expertise in any area. That's why they're the tools of learning. And what she did in her essay is she said if we're going to do schools right, whether it's homeschooling, Christian school, any kind of schooling, if we're going to educate properly, we ought to follow these three ways. After some time, I came to realize that that model fit nicely with the models of traditional education and discipleship that I'd been trained in, and I also began to realize that on a higher plane, before we can master anything in life, from parenting to practicing law to ministering to creating things to teaching to even playing a board game, to walking with God we kind of have to go down these three roads if we're going to do it properly. We have to familiarize ourselves first with the content of any discipline. That's the grammar if you see on that little <laughs> paradigm there. We have to think through then the implementation, the application or practice of, wh- of that information that we've acquired, whatever term you want to use, and then we have to strive to reach a level of proficiency that ensures our success or our enjoyment, or maybe our victory, or even our survival, depending on the situation. Whatever the case may be, and I would submit to you that if we try to circumvent any one of these steps, we're more often than not going to set ourselves up for frustration, if not total failure. Let me illustrate that simply. I got a new weed eater a couple weeks ago. Chris might appreciate this. It does not look anything like the beast of a whacker that I've been using for 10 years. Uh, It's lighter, it has a few more knobs and switches, it doesn't smoke like a chimney of fire when it runs, I can actually breathe now when I cut the weeds. And you know in my younger days I'm sure I would have ripped open that box, poured gas in the tank and started ripping away at the cord. Before long I'd have been whining about how they don't make things like they used to. Asking why won't this thing start? Maybe some of the you fellas can empathize with this. Anybody not like to read the instructions? <coughs> you ever build a model with the instructions and you've glued part A and part B together and it looks real nice, but you realize you were supposed to insert part C first and now you're stuck and have to either take it apart or leave out part C whatever. Well, as I've come to understand these three ways, I've learned that the best thing to do is to unpack the product, sit down, read the instructions thoroughly, and then think through what I'm being told to do and why. For example, there's a unique way to start this weed eater. I don't really understand the rationale for it, but here it is. You're supposed to set the weed eater on full choke and yank the cord no more than six times until you hear it try to start. But you're not supposed to start it then you're supposed to flip the switch to half choke, yank the cord no more than six times until it starts. You're supposed to wait a moment, then you're supposed to flip the switch to run and take off and do your thing. Now, I don't know what's going on there. I really don't. But I do know that 20 years ago, I wouldn't have done that. And I'd have been yanking, and I'd seen that switch and gone, choke, no, choke, no, run, no, choke, no. What's wrong with it? And sometimes, by God's grace, he might have said, I'll start the thing for the simpleton. <clears throat> More often than not, and worse yet, my wife would have probably walked out and says, Honey, it says right here you're supposed to... Oh. Or even worse yet, I, you know, fall into something where I just don't even get to utilize the tool, you know, and and you throw it down in frustration, and it's all because you didn't know, you didn't take the time to figure out how things are supposed to work. And I see the analogies there in my life constantly. Sometimes I would suppose that there might have been a friend, matter of fact, uh, living on... uh, Fraser Street, when we did, I can see a particular friend probably walking across the street and very kindly and compassionately with concern for me saying, you know, uh, here's what you're supposed to do. I've read the instructions. And sometimes that's uncomfortable, but it's certainly nice, isn't it? I think the analogy might be a good one in a reference to our spiritual walk with God. The instruction manual is obviously God's word. It's our grammar, this is our milk, this is the thing that we want to memorize, meditate upon, familiarize ourselves with, so that the Holy Spirit has material to deal with when he said, Christ said, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. And if I don't know, that portion of this word that I don't know is material that God's Holy Spirit cannot yet use to bring all things to my remembrance whatsoever he has taught me. If I've not heard it, he can't use it. As we grow in our familiarity with the instruction manual, we meditate on it, chew the meat, as it were, think through its applications and reason, through its translations into our daily living, then it becomes incumbent upon us to obey those principles that we can't figure out the rationale necessarily always for doing so. But we obey. Like that weed eater, I do not know the physics or the mechanics or the chemistry, whatever it is, I do not know why you have to go through the full choke, half choke, run cycle. But I trust the manufacturer knows and that there's a reason for why I do this. And believe it or not, if I follow his instructions, it works. And I don't know why, necessarily, God laid out all the principles He did. I do not have a grasp of how certain principles in God's, words, God word, God's Word work. I just know that if we obey them, they always seem to work out. Isn't it strange that if you want to receive, God says you have to give? What a paradox. And there are many examples like that that I could not explain to you All the machinations of what's going on to make that work, but we know that it does. So through familiarity, obedience, and practice, we then become somewhat poetic. Sayers called the stages, when you learn these things, the Paul Parrot, the Pert, and the poet. And a poet is just somebody who can eloquently do what they do. My friend Chris Walton is a poetic football coach. He, he 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 is he he he's good at what he does he's eloquent my friend stan langhoffer is an eloquent nurse he, he can take a guy who has kidney problems put him at peace give him some confidence and hope and that's what she would call the poetic stage when you become an expert a, it's always growing, always getting better. No one would ever claim to have arrived in any discipline, but when you've reached that level of proficiency, you're poetic. So much so, for example, that we can even be used by God to impart our faith to others and be examples that are worthy of emulation. Which is, of course, the goal of that Second Timothy two two discipleship in Christian ministry. I think again about that weed eater if I had just read the instructions piecemeal maybe I don't notice that you're supposed to use mixed gas and before long I've ruined the engine maybe I don't understand how the feeder mechanism works so I've got the engine running full bore but I'm not accomplishing anything because the string won't come out if I take an approach to knowing God's Word in that way that is too laid back or too selective maybe I miss out on some truths in the Old Testament that could have changed certain outcomes in damaged relationships I have, or kept me from poor financial decisions, or from looking back on life like Solomon and said, oh my goodness, so many of my pursuits were just emptiness and vanity. Anyway, I've been putting these things together over the years and I've found somewhat of a passion for developing this thing that I call the Paladin Paradigm. It started with the reading of Raising a Modern Day Knight, which I know some of you are familiar with by Robert Lewis. And sure enough, I noticed that the stages in the progression toward knighthood seemed to parallel nicely with the progressions of the trivium and discipleship and all of those principles that are laid out there. Paladin is a, it's a French word that uh, was used to describe a knight who was regarded as the leading champion of a cause. It's funny, I went to school in South Carolina about a half hour from Furman University and... Their mascot, of course, was the paladin, and I'm ashamed to admit I used to think it was some kind of flower or something. You know, what's a paladin? Who'd want to be a paladin? Uh, And then I found out it was one of the most noble of all uh, the legends of chivalry. Uh, A paradigm, of course, is just the model that you use. It's a theoretical framework or concept. You put your generalizations, your theories, your formulations to it. So here's my chart I've been working on. I'll skip the Plutarch column. He was a Roman historian around A.D. 100, but it it was interesting to me that he had this thing nailed too. He uh, used the terminology principles, practice, and perfection. You teach young people the principles. In their youth, you get them to practice it so that in their adulthood they can go out and perfect their skills in whatever it is they're doing. That stages of knighthood column, uh, Jessica and Laura would appreciate this, that stages of knighthood column drives a lot of the analogies and metaphors that I use with my students and my own children. Notice how nicely it fits with the other levels, and I didn't contrive any of this, of course. It's all just laid out there. A year or so ago, Tammy and I engaged in a little ceremony with our daughter Anna when she turned 13. It was all about her progressing from the feminine version of being a page to the level of squire. We'll do the same with Andrew when he turns 13 and that was just a lot of fun. For us anyway, I don't know, Anna was a bit nerved. It's interesting to me by the way that a young boy was given a sword when he became a squire in his early teens and was expected to learn how to wield it properly before he could be promoted to the status of knight and allowed to go out and wield it on his own. I think that's a great analogy to the idea of training our children thoroughly in the word, which is, of course, quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, according to Hebrews 4.12. We do that before we send them out to defend the faith and advance the kingdom on their own, so to speak. If I may be so bold, I think training them in the Word involves a whole lot more than just Bible stories. And this is kind of the crux of what I'd like to get at today as an emphasis. It implies doing our best to acquaint them with the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. And by the way, when a squire then became a knight, he wasn't given a sword, which uh, you see the dubbing's, but he's being dubbed with his own sword that he's been practicing with for years. He was when he became a knight. He was granted a full coat of armor, which I think fits really nicely with the Ephesians 6 metaphor of the whole armor of God. The Lord would dub a knight, and he wouldn't just send him out with a sword to defend the king and kingdom. Just as our Lord doesn't just send us out with the word alone, He sends us out with the helmet of salvation the breastplate of righteousness, our loins girt about with truth, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and I'm probably missing one or two. But then he would go out and defend king and kingdom, advance the cause and promote the king. And I like that metaphor, I like that analogy. I recently attended a conference and sat in on a lecture about the education of a Hebrew child. And it was with great anticipation that I sat down. And I hoped the speaker would say what he was going to say. And sure enough, he did. As he laid out the stages of a Hebrew boy's upbringing, he spoke about how the first few years were spent in grammar. He was just talking about a perfect parallel to this thing called the trivium. Their first few years were a total immersion in the law of God. As a matter of fact, he argued that young boys, young Hebrew boys had to memorize the whole book of Leviticus, which to me was amazing. Why Leviticus? (laughs) Give me Genesis, give me Deuteronomy, Leviticus. And it was about the sacrificial laws, and it was to drive home in their mind the fact that they were sinners who needed to be redeemed by blood sacrifice. And then they would go off and they would learn large portions of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy and they become well acquainted with the history books so that they'd have a good handle on their national heritage, moral laws, ceremonial laws, principles. And that was how they spent their youth, just being, having this crammed into their heads so that they would have the material to draw from when it was time to reason about it, to think logically about it, to figure out how to apply it and in that second stage, they would turn to wisdom literature, what we might call wisdom literature. And he said the three main emphases were Psalms, Proverbs, and the book of Job. And this is what they would be immersed in at this next stage of their learning. And, and that was done all with a view. The Hebrews had a very oral tradition. It was done all with a view so that these young people who were being trained in the word could then train the next generation. The Hebrew tradition was a very oral one. They had the word of God in the synagogues where you could come and read it and would do so. But most of the transmission of fact and information was by word of mouth. And they had to be so well versed to maintain accuracy and to be able to stand up against the temptations of the world to get them to change their belief structure. And you know, as I departed that conference room, I was overwhelmed by feelings of inadequacy and urgency. Inadequacy because I realize that too much of my own training of my children in the Word, to this point, and my oldest is only 13, has been far too devotional and piecemeal. What they really needed is a more thorough immersion and intense focus on what is in the Word of God and the feeling of urgency of course was to get on the stick and start doing it i told you earlier of my love for eighth grade students and i do especially love teaching the bible to them i have to admit however that it's frustrating to see that most of these young masters and maidens who come to the eighth grade haven't a good grasp of what's in the word of god and they've grown up in christian homes and they've many of them gone to christian school and I don't want to be too harsh there because I just confessed my own inadequacies with my own children, but at a stage when we should be discussing and debating and hammering out our positions, we're still introducing concepts that are foreign to these young people because they've simply never seen that part of the Word of God, never seen it, whether it's a minor prophet, a major prophet, some epistle in the middle of the New Testament, whatever the case may be. I would argue that the Hebrews would say, shame on you. And uh, I found that gentleman in that conference, as he was speaking very graciously, every time he looked at me, I felt like he was saying, shame on you. As you go on in that model, the, the, the same thing seems to apply to apprenticeships. One would start by observing the masters at work, learning the terminology of the trade, the uses of each tool or instrument. He'd he'd be allowed to assist for several years in developing his skills. There would then come a point when he was allowed to set out on his own and create his masterpiece. We sort of misuse the word masterpiece today, or at least we've certainly redefined the term in our times. In earlier times, a masterpiece was the creation that was submitted by an apprentice uh, for acceptance into his chosen guild. If the masters approved of his work, it was called his masterpiece, and he was accepted to the guild. If not, he had to go out and try, try again until he could gain acceptance. And an important point to make here is that no one assumed that the artisan's masterpiece would be the best work that he did in his life, that there wasn't room for growth, that there wasn't room for further training and improvement. They simply acknowledged that he'd attained a level of proficiency that would allow him the privilege of imparting his skills to others and allow him the privilege of being called a member of that guild. And it makes me wonder. We just had a graduation from our school. And I know uh, at this conference this weekend, there was a gentleman talking about the wonder of sending your child off into the world. And I wonder if we've created people who are worthy of being addressed as members of the guild or if they still needed a whole lot more training and we just didn't make it by the time they left us. When I think of the page and apprentice models, I think of my sons in particular. And I find myself grieved at how all too often I fail them. Notice the key word in both of those models on your sheet. It's observation. And that may be for better or for worse. I'm the de facto master that they're observing. I'm their dad. I have to constantly ask myself hard questions of discipleship and chivalry and learning. Am I living out my faith the way I want them to live out theirs when they're men? Am I treating their mother the way I want them to treat their wives? Am I leading my family in a way that I want to see them lead theirs? The questions are infinite, aren't they? And I found an analogy here to raising my children. At some point, whenever they leave the, lo- leave the home, they're going to be my or our, metaphorical. they're going to be our masterpiece, aren't they? What we've done to prepare and train them is what we've done. Have we trained them in a way that when they are old, they will not depart from it, Proverbs 22:6. Have I grounded them so thoroughly in the word? that the Holy Spirit has definite material to work with when they're on their own and it's time for Him to teach them all things, bring all things to their remembrance. doesn't mean they've arrived at 20 or 22 or whatever, a lifetime of growth and learning ahead, more familiarity with the Word, etc. But have I set them up with these tools of discipleship, these tools of learning, to allow them to be successful and survive in the world? This weekend, uh, I said we'd attend that homeschooling uh, conference in Wichita, and the featured speaker was Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis fame. Has anybody heard of him? One of his addresses had to do with the speculation as to why so many church people grow up and reject the faith and have nothing to do with the church. And his argument was this. While the church and families are involved in teaching Bible stories, that were fun and interesting, and doing all they could to place them in some entertaining package. The public schools and the secular media were hammering home the truths about evolution, millions and millions of years of the development of man. It's not even spoken of anymore as theory. This may have happened. It's just spoken of as fact, isn't it? Millions of years ago, da-da-da-da-da-da. Then when the young person reaches an age where they can reason for themselves and think and they can't rectify the real truths of Genesis because they only heard it one time or two times as a youth couched in a flowery Bible story, they can't rectify those real truths with their perceived truths that they've come to accept by default because they've just heard them over and over and over again. If you reject any part of the Bible as untrue then you're set up to reject it all, aren't you? He even argued that many who would call themselves Christians have really become their own standard for morality as they run around making decision about what parts of the Bible are infallible and truthful and what parts are mere story or legend or object lesson. I, found I was grieved at that as well. Well, if you'll indulge me for just a few moments, I'd I'd like to turn uh, just a little bit. I'd like to introduce a couple more columns to the model that I found fascinating. These came out of a book written by Dorothy Sayers called The Lost Tools of Learning. Actually, she wrote The Lost Tools of Learning. The book she wrote that these came out of is The Mind of the Maker. And hers is a book that has to do with creativity and how the creativity of man is a reflection upon the nature and character of his creator, God. She focuses primarily on literary creativity because she was an essayist and novelist by occupation. However, she makes an easy point that all of these principles apply to any creative endeavor. She claims, first of all, that creativity begins with the ideas that a person has in his or her mind. So really what I maybe should have done is taken those two columns that are next and put them below when I'm confronted with any issue in life, when I'm confronted with any challenge, what I bring to the table in dealing with that issue is what's up here. I I have to draw from all of my learning. I have to draw from my understanding of Scripture, life experience, and she calls that, and I think appropriately so, the idea. I have an idea of how I'm going to address this circumstance. She claims that they begin with ideas that a person has in his mind, For example, the book that you write is really already in your head. You just haven't extracted and energized and organized your materials yet. The same thing goes for a song that you'd compose, or a pot that you would throw, or a tapestry that you would weave. Our ideas about what we're going to create come from the sum total of what we know and we've experienced. A person who's not well educated, for example, will be extremely limited in the analogies that he can use in a college essay. Uh, A person who knows very little scripture is literally stifling the Holy Spirit's ability to bring all things to his remembrance. For our ideas to be made manifest, we have to exert some form of energy. We arrange them and we give them form. Uh, We do this every time we open our mouths to speak. The idea was there and this is your product. We do it when we paint a picture, when we diagram a football play, when we answer a patient's question. We do it every time we apply what we know to the circumstance that we're faced with. We do it when we make a meal. We do it as we raise our children. The power of our creation is found in our ability to communicate what we wanted to communicate clearly and to have the desired impact on others or for the kingdom of God. Things that we call classics, for example, tend to be powerful because they've withstood the test of time. But we don't need to think on such a grand scale to understand the meaning here. Uh, There's power in a well made casserole, isn't there? There's power in a well played piece of music. There's power in a well communicated thought. There's power in a life well lived for Christ in a question properly answered, in a game well played. And, of course, there can be a lack of power, can't there, in something done poorly or illogically, inadequately or improperly. If we want to have the greatest impact for the kingdom of God, we want the utmost power, do we not? Let me illustrate this by picking on somebody who's absent. That's always a fun thing to do. Lisa Schneider, she has an obvious gift, doesn't she, for creating things with clay and glaze and a potter's wheel? If I understand this model of thought properly, it would be accurate to say that when she sits at her wheel with a lump of clay in her hand, she's in the idea stage. The sum total that all, of all she knows about throwing a pot is about to be unleashed on that ball of clay, isn't it? And she turns the wheel and begins forming the clay. She's animating her ideas with the necessary energy to create something. This amalgamation of ideas and energy has as its end result that pot that's been thrown, dried, glazed, fired. I probably missed something there. Uh, The final product though is, at least in my opinion, typically a powerful one. It's certainly powerful enough for Tammy and I to display her work on our shelves. It's powerful enough to receive a compliment from anybody who sees it. It's powerful enough for any onlooker to say, Wow, I wish I could do that. And it's powerful enough to fulfill one of her purposes, which is, I know, to bring glory to God. As a matter of fact, she's at an art fair even this weekend, is she not? There, There are two parallels I see here. The first one has to do with just about anything we might endeavor to do in life. And the second, and most important for our purposes, has to do with practical Christian living. Somebody once said, we're never more like our Creator than when we are being creative. I'd suggest that this little paradigm ought to serve as a guiding principle for just about anything we would set our minds or hands to do. We've become familiar enough with the terms, the rules, the necessary concepts to be successful, This usually means reading the instruction manual, manual, memorizing the rules, observing various masters about us. We arrange those ideas in a a manner that's logical and practical for our circumstances. Stated otherwise, we need to sweat a little about this thing called Christian living. We need to sometimes work at it really hard through practice, interaction, application, and in so doing... uh, that which we can possess, that which we do has the greatest potential power for influencing others. Uh, Which happens the young helping girl who played the piano today? Jessica, that was beautiful. Will you do it again later? So you want me to be quiet, don't you? She didn't just sit down and start playing the piano, did she? She had to practice, she had to sweat through that, but now, She's manifesting a power, isn't she? And it's ministering to us. And it's beautiful. If she had never practiced Mighty is Our God and sat down to play that thing, she would have pretty well screwed up worship for us, wouldn't we? Wouldn't she? (laughs) We're trying to sing Mighty is Our God. She's playing this little light of mine because that's all she knew. And so it takes practice and preparation in any endeavor in life. For practical Christianity, Christian living, I think that this model works very well. You know, I'm really thankful. They certainly haven't arrived, and I'm sure many of you adults are too. My kids know exponentially more of the Word of God than I could have ever dreamed of knowing as a person who didn't really get started until he was 17. And I'm sure many of you are thankful as well that you have had the opportunity to teach your kids uh, the Word in their youth. If anything, this would serve as a call to redouble our efforts, to get our children acquainted with the whole counsel of God as quickly and as thoroughly as possible, and in all other pursuits of the general knowledge of God's Word. This grounding is what's going to give them the foundation for the most thorough use of that second stage possible, when they can think logically, when they can apply God's principles to life, when they have all that stuff at their disposal to think about as they face the temptations of this world then they can exert creative energy what will be the sum total of their ideas how will they minister to the world around them when they're adults will they be prepared to raise the next generation I want my children to be able to raise their children far better than I've raised them I got too late a start in life and I'm sure that's the sentiment of a lot of you When they have to truly practice their faith, will they have that reservoir of biblical knowledge at their disposal to do it? The end result of that will hopefully be a power, a biblical power, that allows them to advance the kingdom of God in every way possible, from the pot on our shelf that glorifies God to the latest answer. You've given some inquisitor to your faith uh, the power to properly persuade people toward growth in the kingdom of God, or toward entrance into the kingdom of God, is really what it's all about, isn't it? We are here to be ambassadors for Christ, and we're here to strive to seek to be perfect as He is perfect. You notice that last column addresses the three persons of the Godhead. That's not really a parallel. It's... We weren't argue, uh, Sayers uh, came up with that and wasn't necessarily arguing for perfect parallels. I do agree with her, however, that the elements of creativity are certainly reflections of our being created in God's image. In the beginning, for example, was the Word, the Logos, that might be thought of as analogous to the idea. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's the energy, the power. We saw Him. That might be thought of christ exerting his earthly energy to live a perfect life on earth and die for our sins you know one thing just a quick aside and we were both just we just sat there in silence as we talked about the fact that when jesus uh, adrian how old are you when jesus was 17 years old our ours was 13 you realize he made it through his whole 17th year of life and never sinned once Couldn't sin once, not once. Just Andrea, how old are you? Thirteen. His whole thirteenth year of life, he never fought with his sister once. He never backtalked his mother once. And he knew the word. He knew his father's word thoroughly to apply it to every circumstance not once, if he'd have done it once at the age of 12, if he'd have sinned once he'd not have been allowed to die for our sins, if you're a young person, isn't that a profound thought it just stupefied me to stop and think about that and then in the end, of course, you'll receive power, as Jesus said. When Jesus had to leave so that we could have full power, didn't he? If He said, if I stayed among you manifesting this finite energy, you'll not have fullest of power. But if I leave, the Holy Spirit will come, and you'll receive power when he's come upon you. You'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, the utter ends of the earth. These words of Christ to his disciples were spoken at the conclusion of his earthly ministry, and by extension, we know that they're spoken to us. Demonstrate his love and be his witnesses to the uttermost ends of the earth, starting right here in Topeka, right here in our own families. May we be as immersed in the knowledge of the Word as we possibly can, so that for his kingdom we can be as powerful as we can. And if you're a parent, I would just appeal to you to maybe join with us and even hold us accountable for getting that done in our own children's life in a way that will allow them to truly know the whole counsel of God, not just a bunch of entertaining Bible stories, but the whole counsel of God by the time we have to allow them to leave and cleave and start the next generation. Would you pray with me? Thanks for this time, Lord. I pray that it's been a blessing. I hope that you will allow us all to have a desire to truly know your word inside and out and as much as possible so that your spirit has as much material as possible to deal with in helping us in our quest to glorify you and enjoy you forever. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name.